It's always fascinated me during Christmas season when I've studied as a student of the Word now for more than 20 years, as I've studied the birth of Jesus and how different the birth of Jesus was not celebrated, how different the people of this time looked at the birth of Jesus as compared to the modern day narrative that we have. It was not a happy time. It wasn't a good thing, really from almost any perspective. You know, the only people that were really celebrating were the shepherds, and they had to be told to celebrate. It wasn't a great night for Mary. I like the song, Silent Night, but I don't think it was. I mean, she was in a stable with animals. Most animals don't like weird people in their stables. They had just traveled miles at the height of her pregnancy on a donkey to a land that they had no intentions of going but had to go for the census. And when they get there, she has to give birth. Obviously, it's not a hospital. It's away from all of her family. She's away from mama and daddy. This is, it's not the picture that we have. It's just not. It's just not the picture that we have been painted of what it looked like that night. And then we read in the text that, and I quote, all of Jerusalem. When they heard, when word finally got back to them, it took a little while, but when word finally got back that Jesus had been born, all of Jerusalem and Herod, representative of the Roman rulers, were greatly troubled. Herod was so troubled that he ordered the murder of all boys under the age of three in Bethlehem and the entire region surrounding Bethlehem, he was willing to murder off hundreds, maybe thousands of three-year-old and under boy, excuse me, two-year-old and under boys in the hopes of at the very least killing this one child. Very different than the modern day version that we have of the birth of Christ. And I want to ask the question, why? What did they see? What lens were they looking through that was very different from ours, the way that we look at the birth of Christ? And I want to submit to you very simply, the answer is this. They recognized this was not just the birth of some sweet little baby boy. This was the birth of a conquering king who had been foretold for ages. This was the birth that the prophets had spoken of, of a king who would come and one day ultimately destroy all nations. This was the birth of the promised Messiah who would come and step and crush the head of Satan. And so this king was born to conquer 
And there were a handful of people, especially people of power and influence, that wanted this king killed. We are going to finish this sermon series this morning. And for those of you that haven't been here for the last couple of months, we've been doing a sermon series titled The Good Fight. For those of you who have been following the sermon series, I want you to look at what I'm going to preach this morning through the lens of, we've been called to follow Jesus. Christ followers follow Christ. And our king is a conquering king. He is a fearless leader who came to conquer a handful of things. And we're going to look at these things this morning. I'm going to share with you five things that Christ was born to conquer. Number one, Christ was born to conquer powerless worship. Look what Matthew chapter 7 verses 28 and 29 tell us about Jesus. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. We see that when Jesus came, and began teaching and preaching that Jesus had an authority and a power that was lacking amongst the rest of those who were teaching in his day. We see that he came and conquered what I will call powerless worship or powerless religion. What is powerless religion, powerless worship? It is something that doesn't have the power to change. It's just motions. It's emptiness. And here's the reality. Multitudes of people are trapped in powerless worship. What's really interesting, if you, you, you look at the text, notice the people recognized it. The people said, he teaches with authority and power, unlike our teachers. Yet, they're still showing up week in, week out, hearing their powerless, lifeless teachers. By the way, this was the Jewish folks here. In other words, God's people. You'll find the same thing happens often even in today, modern-day Christianity. There was a lot of powerless worship. And the danger of powerless worship is this. It's confusing to those who are brought up in it. They hear about an all-loving, all-powerful God who has the power to change your life. The only thing is they've never seen God change anybody's life. They've never seen God do anything. And so they're hearing about this God that wants to do great things, that has the power to do great things, that is, that is God above all, that has power above all, and then they're watching lifeless, powerless worship. It's very confusing. I will submit to you, it's one of the reasons that in this country, we see an 80% exodus of children once they turn 18 and get out of the church. Because they've heard about it all their life, but they've never actually seen it demonstrated. And they're not stupid. Your kids aren't stupid. Our kids are not dumb. You can go through motions. You can show up to church every week. 
You can quote scriptures. You can win Bible contests. You can serve on mission teams. You can give your thing. You, you can do all these things and just be going through motions and actually never really truly experience the power of God. Jesus came and demonstrated he was very different than everybody else. He came and demonstrated that there is, in fact, a true faith, a real faith that connects mankind to the true God, the real God, and that this God has the power to change. Number two, Christ was born to conquer sin. And there are two primary ways that Jesus conquered sin. First of all, he entirely, completely, and perfectly overcame sin. Look what Hebrews 4 verses 14 and 15 tell us. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The first way that Jesus conquered sin was by overcoming it. In other words, I might say it this way, where we failed, he did not. Jesus never sinned. And this is important when we look at why it was necessary in order for him to overcome our sin. But let us camp on that for a moment, brothers and sisters. Jesus never sinned. The Bible says he was tempted in all points like you and I, yet without sin. It's the opinion of this preacher, and I think biblically I can win this opinion, but it's the opinion of this preacher. Not only was he tempted at all points like we are, he was tempted beyond what we are. And I want to explain. So elsewhere the Bible says this about Jesus and us. It says, you have not yet resisted sin to the point of bloodshed. Now, that's a reference to Jesus who did resist sin to the point of bloodshed. Now, there are some who think that that statement refers to Jesus dying on the cross. I personally do not. I think that refers to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where in Luke's gospel, we are told that Jesus prayed three times. He was earnestly seeking God. He knew that within 24 hours, he was going to die a criminal's death. He was going to be humiliated. He was going to be nearly beaten to death before being crucified. And he was processing all of that. And the Bible records for us, he cried out to God and asked God, if there's any other way, please, Lord, don't make me do this. Take this cup from me, was the words he used. Nevertheless, thy will be done. The Bible says he prayed this three times, and Luke's gospel records something very significant. This is what it records, that his sweat became as great drops of blood. Medically, it's been proven Jesus is not the only person that's ever had that happen to him. I looked it up 
just a minute ago because I didn't know at the first service, but it's called hematidrosis. It's a very rare condition when blood works itself out the mucous membranes of the skin. And it happens to people very rare under extreme, immense stress and pressure. And in that moment of Jesus' life, just like you and I are tempted to say, God, what you're asking me to do is too hard. The way is too straight. I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I can keep going. While Jesus prayed about it and he talked to his father about it, he submitted to the father's will and resisted saying no to God resisted saying no to God's will for his life because it seems so hard and so difficult. He resisted it to the point of bloodshed. That's why I say I believe he was tempted beyond really what we've, we've ever been tempted. You know, another way to, uh, to, to explain it, and then I'm going to move on from this point, but I, I want you to understand how great of a feat it was that he conquered sin by overcoming it. It's mind-blowing. Jesus was a man. He was fully God, but he was fully man. He struggled with the same thoughts, the same, he was tempted like we are. And you will never really know the power of a temptation until you completely withstand it. Let me explain this. All of us have a breaking point. And so I'm going I'm to stand against this temptation in my life. But all of us have a breaking point. There's only so much that we can take before we end up caving, if you will. Another way to say that is often there's only so much we will take before we decide to give in. God, it's not worth it. It's too hard. I can't say no any longer. I can't, I can't do this any longer. I can't. It's just not worth it. And we end up caving and making the decision to sin. You'll never really know how bad that temptation was going to be. Like, maybe it, was, maybe it was almost over. You had resisted to the point, but you, you felt like you couldn't take it anymore. For all you know, just a little bit more resisting, and that temptation was going to flee. You'll never know how strong the temptation actually was, because there was a point you made the decision to give in to it. Maybe when you gave in, it was only 10% how hard it was going to be had you continued to stay. You, there's no way to know. The only one who really knows the complete entire weight of temptation was Jesus because he never gave into it ever. He always overcame it. So he came to conquer sin, first of all, in that aspect. Second of all, though, thank God, he came to completely and totally and perfectly atone for sin for you and I. He came to conquer our sins, brothers and sisters. This is part of why he had to live the perfect life. He had to be sinless so that he could be the sinless sacrifice to atone for our sins. When I start to look at what Jesus came to do, it starts to make sense why the enemy wanted him dead right away. Why Herod was after the king. I believe with all of my heart, Herod and the rest of the religious leaders were stirred up by Satan that ultimately behind it all was this evil one trying to destroy God's king. Not only did Jesus come to conquer sin, not only did he come to conquer powerless worship, Christ was born to conquer death. 
Look what Acts 2, 22, verses 22 through 24 say. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Look what Jesus said about it himself after raising from the dead in Revelation 1.18. Speaking of the living one, he says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Bless God. Let me ask you the question, what other king has ever conquered death? There is no king like Jesus. He is the great conquering king who conquered sin and conquered death. There has never been anything that is worse or more feel fearful for mankind than death itself. In fact, if you're not saved, nothing, nothing is worse than death. It is the moment you leave this life and enter into an eternity of hell and separation from God. Nothing could be more terrifying than death itself for the unsaved. But for the Christian, we see in 1 Corinthians 15, this statement ring out of our mouths, Oh, death, where is your sting? <laughs> oh, death, where is your victory? It has none for us because our king has conquered death. For us, the very moment we die, we enter into the presence of God. For the Christian, as Paul said it, to die is Christ, excuse me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Our king has conquered death. He's even conquered the sting of death for you and I. I'm telling you, he's a conquering king. Number four, Christ was born to conquer Satan. Could have selected a tremendous amount of passages for this one, but I've went with Matthew 8, verses 28 through 32. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. I selected this passage because while there are multitudes of times that all teach the exact same truth, here and in Mark 5, Mark's record of this same event, we have Jesus, as far as the Bible records, dealing with the most demon-possessed man that he'd ever dealt with. The man's name, they called him Legion. That wasn't his real name. That's what he was known by because it was believed that he had thousands of demons. Notice that when Jesus, the conquering king, shows up, these demons are begging him, please don't send us into the abyss now. What I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, is that 
Christ is a conquering king who came to conquer Satan. And he repeatedly demonstrated his power over the demonic realm. There has never been another king like Jesus. And what's amazing is that when Jesus left, he gave his authority to his disciples and to you and I, brothers and sisters. Our king is a conquering king. Now, all of these things, you take all of these things and you begin to think about them, you begin to wrap them together, and it brings me to really my final point. I want to drive home today. Christ was born to conquer confusion. Christ was born to conquer confusion. Everybody wants to know who's the true God? What's real? What do I believe? What about all the other religions? What about all the other religious books? Who's really God? Jesus came to settle it once and for all. In conquering powerless religion, in conquering sin, in conquering death, and in conquering Satan, this king conquered the confusion once and for all of who is God. There's only one God. There's only one Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other way than God. He determined what is right, what is false, what is true. And here's what I want you to see, brothers and sisters. The devil is a confuser. The Bible says God's not the author of confusion. The devil is. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the devil on the stage, step on the stage, and begin trying to bring confusion into the world. I'm going to camp here for a while. We're going to be here for about 10 minutes, folks. Because what I want you to see is that what we're dealing with today is really not any different than what the world's been dealing with forever. And the answer for what we need today is really not any different than what the answer has always been forever. But let's take a look at where it all started all the way back in Genesis 3. God has said real clearly, this is how it is. Adam and Eve have no confusion. And then the devil steps on the scene and says, hey, wait, hold, did God actually say that? And Eve says, oh, no, he did, yeah. That's exactly what he said. Are you sure? Yes, I'm totally sure that is what God said. Okay, well then, you need to know there's another reality. And in fact, what you think is real isn't true. God has lied to you. God just doesn't want you to know the truth because he knows if you know the truth, you'll be just like him. And now we got the devil just spitting out crazy lies, just total nonsense, garbage. But here's the goal. And I pray the Holy Ghost will give you some wisdom to see it this morning, folks. Here was the goal, to get Adam and Eve to question what's real. They were presented an alternative reality. It's what the devil's been doing since day one. It's not new. And I'm telling you, Christ came to settle, to clear, absolutely get it settled, and conquer the confusion. There's nobody else that's ever did what he's did. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most documented, provable, historical fact 
of the ages. People that still live in confusion, they do so because they refuse to believe Christ and obey Christ and do what God tells them to do. But it is a conscious choice to stick your head in the sand and refuse to believe the facts, which is ultimately what the devil has always been trying to get humanity to do. Now, we're talking about the good fight. This is the last message of the sermon series. And we started last week with kind of the practical application of like, what does this look like in daily living, right? How should I as a Christian live today? How now should we live? Brothers and sisters, one of the things we must stand up for is reality. And reality has always been challenged and it is being challenged today. You know, I read an article last week and I actually read the article. Let me tell you the headline. The headline was this. Women aren't the only ones who can get pregnant. That's the headline. I took time to read the article because I wanted to, I just wanted to read it. I wanted to know how are they going about this? It's a major article, I mean, it's a major national magazine chain, and you will find that other huge groups like New York Times, uh, Time Magazine, handfuls of others are saying the similar type of garbage at one time or another, or at the very least, allowing people to print editorials uh, inside of their magazines. Now, let me ask you something. If the mob, if your government, if some educated person wearing scrubs claiming to be a doctor can get you to say that men can have babies, what else can they get you to say? Or at the very least, if you're too much of a coward to stand up and say that is garbage, it's not true, what else can they coward you into staying silent about? If somebody can get you to say that a boy can choose to be a girl or that a girl can choose to be a boy, what else can they get you to say? Or at the very least, if you're too much of a coward to speak up and say what is true and what is real, what else can they get you to be a coward about and keep your mouth shut? I'm talking about a king who came to be a conquering king. Have you ever considered the fact that they wanted him dead when he was born? And this is a weird statement to make. It's kind of like, duh. But they wanted him dead when he died. Have you ever considered that? Like, I said this last week. Jesus preached for three years. People were done. Enough! We, we are so tired of what he is saying and so tired of what he is proving, we've got to find a way to shut this man up. We've got to kill him. Three years of preaching, folks. John the Baptist, about the same time frame, his head's cut off. He wasn't afraid to look at the religious leaders of his day, wasn't even a religious leader, and say, that's an adulterous relationship. It's wrong. 
the disciples martyred for their faith. What I'm trying to tell you, brothers and sisters, is the church needs a fire lit in its belly to stand up for what is real. God knows my heart. I don't feel like I need to say this. I'm going to say it anyways. And I'm not talking about politics, folks. I'm not. This is not about politics. This is about God's given design for his creation. This is about the reality that heaven and hell are real. This is about the truth that there is only one way. And ultimately, the reason these men were martyred, it wasn't because they picked a political affiliation. It was because they were preaching to everybody from all spectrums that you must repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. He is the king. So this is the reason I was speaking with uh, one of our pastors before this service about this exact thought that this is actually the reason Rome hated him. This is the reason Rome went along with Jesus' murder. They didn't care too much about religious. You could worship whatever religious figure you want. But when they hear, wait a second, you, you say he's a king that demands allegiance above all else? No, no, allegiance goes to Caesar above all. The Christian says, nope. My allegiance is to God. It's not to Caesar. It's not to some political party. It's not to a president. It's not to a king. It is to the one and only king of all kings, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has, he has died for me and I was bought with a price. He is all that I have and everything that I have is his. This is the true heart of Christianity. What I want to submit to you, brothers and sisters, we need conquerors. Man, Jesus was a conqueror. The disciples were conquerors. They, they were unafraid. They were willing to lay down their lives. The disciples were conquerors. The first century church were conquerors. They went into their cultures and into their communities and they made a difference. And lives were saved and communities were changed while simultaneously those who refused hated them all the more and would either drive them out or martyr them. But they made a difference. They were not weak. They were not silent. We too, as real, true Christ followers, we should be more than conquerors. Look at Romans 8.37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. When you take Romans 8.37 in context, Paul says, you know, what's going to divert us? What's going to separate us from God and from God's plan for our life and our commitment to God? Is, is death going to do it? The sword, peril, famine, nakedness? He's like, no, and all these things were more than conquerors. You understand what Paul's saying? This was the mindset of the church. They're going to try to starve us. They're going to try to kill us by the sword. They're going to falsely imprison us. But first of all, none of this stuff's going to separate us from God. Wherever we go, God's going to be with us. And in the end, here's how we see ourselves. We're not defeated little weaklings. No, we are more than conquerors. They had that mindset. It does not matter what you do. We're not going to quit preaching Jesus. We're not going to quit preaching righteousness. We're not going to quit calling sin, sin. If you've got to kill us, then kill us. If you've got to starve us, then starve us. If you've got to imprison us, then imprison us. But so long as there is a tongue in my mouth and a beat uh, in this heart of mine, I'm going to proclaim the truths of God. I'm going to stand for what is right. And I'm going to stand for what is true. And here's what I'm trying to tell you, church. We need some people with that spirit to rise up and be people who will stand for what is real and stand for what is true. Our children 
need us. The helpless need us. As I was writing these notes out this week, I, you know, I thought about how, how, how wicked of a culture we become. Not just wicked in what we support, but, but more from the angle of what I believe God sees it, wicked in our unwillingness to help the helpless. We have children being brought up where they're, they're, they're being told these crazy things, wild things. Boys are not boys, girls are not girls. In fact, you can be multiple. If you want to be like three girls and two boys, we'll call you they and them. It's so stupid, but here's the thing. It's, it, it, I'm telling you, it's no different than Genesis chapter 3. It's an alternate reality. And what we need some people with enough guts and courage to stand up and say, that is not even real. That is not even true. There is a God who loves you and who fearfully and wonderfully made you. And God has a design for his creation. And anything outside of that design will only lead you to pain and sorrow and destruction. And the reality is people that embrace these false realities, the statistics prove they lead to depression and hurt and anger and everything else. We don't need the statistics to prove them, but they do. The word of God is enough. And we need some people with enough courage to stand up and help the helpless. Stand for our children. Stand for the mentally ill. Think about the belief of a boy thinking he could be a girl. You know, it's not anything new. It's, it's called gender dysphoria. It's actually not new, folks. It's not. It didn't all of a sudden just, poof, here it was five years ago. No, it's, it's a mental illness. And you know what? Nobody, nobody on the earth should truly love and care for people struggling with mental illness like God's people should. We need to love all people. But we cannot love people by lying to them. I'm not loving you by making the decision to deny what is real and step into your delusional land of what you think is true. That's not love at all. Love says we've got to have a conversation about this and I need to, I need to help you understand what is real and what is true because it's the only thing that will lead you out is knowing what is true and ultimately knowing the truth. We've got to have enough courage and integrity to stand up for these things, brothers and sisters, to stand up for God's design, to be willing to speak up. We need conquerors. The last statement I'm going to make is a strong statement, but there is no room for cowards in Jesus' kingdom. Now, I'm going to actually give you the text for that. That wasn't just a Joplin swipe. Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Look at this. But as for the cowardly... Did you know they're listed with the faithless? 
the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I'm telling you, there is no room for cowards in Jesus' kingdom. We need men and women of courage and integrity who will stand up for what is true. In conclusion, Christ came to conquer all these things, brothers and sisters. But I want you to be reminded today that Christ will return. And he will conquer all nations when he returns to earth. Look what Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 say. Last scripture reading of the morning. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thank God, that's my king, brothers and sisters. That is our king, brothers and sisters. And that's what we really celebrate on Christmas is the birth of a conquering king. We look forward to his return. As our worship team gets in place this morning, can I tell you that the Christ of scriptures is very different than the Christ of modern day imagination. He is a conquering Christ who has absolute power and authority over all. You know, we could go over, he's got authority over sickness. He's got authority over death. He's got authority over, you know, Satan. He's got authority over the atmosphere. He's got authority over the rain. He's got authority over the wind. But, but we could just sum it up in what the Bible does. It tells us he's got authority over all. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. This is our king, brothers and sisters. And we who have been born again have been born into that kingdom. And I pray that, that God would raise up within his people a spirit of we are conquerors. We are more than conquerors. And if we will not stand up for what is true, if we will not stand up for what is right, if we will not speak up for what is real, who else will? Can you not see this has been the tactic of the enemy since Genesis chapter 3 to offer alternative realities? We must call them out for what they are, false realities. They are not real. They are not true. And we must be the ones waving the flag of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the greatest king there ever was. And he's my king. As I was studying this week, an old sermon kept coming to my mind. I couldn't get it off of my mind. It's 50 years old. It's a sermon. It's, it's more than an hour long. 
And uh, I'm not going to make you listen to an hour-long sermon after listening to me go for 45 minutes. But in the early 1970s, a preacher by the name of S.M. Lockridge delivered a sermon to his church that 50 years later, we're still talking about it. I have taken a five-minute section of that sermon. I took my favorite five minutes. I almost did three and a half, almost did seven. I had a real hard time cutting it out. But I've taken five and a half minutes. The entire sermon is called That's My King. And I want you, I want you to know my favorite part of what you're about to watch. There's a moment when he says this, I wish I could describe him to you. The people laugh because it's pretty funny. It is funny. The way he says it, it makes you want to laugh. But for someone that has spent my life trying to describe Jesus to people, I actually understand what he's saying. And he repeats himself two times after that. It's the only time he repeats himself. He says he's indescribable. And he says it again, he's indescribable. I want you to watch this before we uh, open up invitation. S.M. Lockridge's That's My King. My king was born king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's a king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's a king of Israel. That's a national king. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is a lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? David said the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. My king is the only one for whom there no means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his soulless surprise. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. And he's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in high criticism. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. And that's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. Well, he, he's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He starves God and he dies. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges death. He delivers the 
the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He resolves the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. He's a master of the mighty. He's a captain of the populace. He's a head of the heroes. He's a leader of the legislature. He's an overseer of the overcomers. He's a governor of governors. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's a lord of lords. That's my king. His manifold, his promise is sure, his life is matchless, his goodness is limitless, his mercy is everlasting, his love never changes, his word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens of heaven cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. And Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't even beat him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king.